Well, good morning. If you are a guest, my name is Stuart McCrav. The joy of serving on staff is one of the pastors. And uh, this Sunday, we're, we're going to continue in a series that we just started last Sunday looking at Romans chapter 8. And we're just going to pick up where we left off looking at verses 5 through 13. So we're going we're gonna to read the entirety of our text first. So if you'll go to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> starting with verse 5. Here's what God has for us through the Apostle Paul. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Brothers and sisters, in your pursuit of obedience to God, in your pursuit of transformation, change, becoming more like Jesus, in your pursuit of fighting remaining sin. Are you more optimistic or pessimistic that change and victory will happen? The Christian life involves spiritual war. There will be ups and there will be downs, but Paul's emphasis in this chapter and in our section is of victory. His emphasis is that the Christian life is one of victory in the spirit. And so with Paul's emphasis in mind, I want us to be encouraged and hopeful and optimistic. With the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit in us, we can and will live the victorious life. Now, before we get into our text, let's make sure that we're all on the same page. Maybe you... We're here last Sunday, and you've forgotten some of the context. Maybe you weren't, weren't and so let, let, me, let me help real quick. The book of Romans was written by the Apostle Paul to the Christians in Rome with the hope that they would be a base of operations for him to take the gospel further west into Spain. But at present, they are disunified. They're disunified, and as a result, they're, they're not going to be of much use to him in his missionary efforts. And so... He writes to them, the, the Roman church was made up of Jews and Gentiles, and there's division over the implications of the gospel for how they are to, as Jesus' multi-ethnic people, live together. And so Paul writes, Paul writes 
for the purpose of unity in the gospel for the sake of gospel advancement. Now, uh, chapter 8 falls into this section that started back in chapter 5. 5 through 8, we could summarize as the fruit of justification. Paul is talking about the results of what it looks like to have been declared righteous by God by faith. And then our passage, verses 5 through 13, that just picks right up from where we left off in verses 1 through 4. So let me give just a, a quick synopsis here. In verse 1, Paul makes this emphatic declaration that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That, that is, for those who are by faith united to Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, there is not one pronouncement of guilt and nor will it be one punishment for sin. And then Paul explains why there's no condemnation in Christ. And it's because verse 2, the power of the Spirit has set you free in Christ from the power of sin. And then Paul explains why the Spirit was able to set you free in Christ from the power of sin in verse 3. And it's because God condemns sin. He canceled sin's debt. He broke sin's power in Christ. So if we put verses two and three together, Paul says the power of the Spirit liberates us from the power of sin as he unites us to Jesus' cross work of canceling sin and breaking its power. And then in verse four, Paul says God's purpose in all of that is in order that the righteous requirement of the law, namely loving others, would be fulfilled in us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit does that in us as we live moment by moment under his empowering control. In fact, Paul says that obeying God, loving others, cannot be done living under the flesh's power. So, okay, our verses now, 5 through 13. Here Paul continues to talk about this victorious law fulfilling life in the Spirit. And what we're going to see here are four entailments of the victorious life in the spirit. There's a, a mindset in verses five through eight. There's his presence and a promise in verses nine through 11, and then an obligation in verses 12 through 13. So the first entailment of the victorious Christian life in the spirit is a mindset. It's, it's a victorious mindset. In these verses, Paul wants believers to understand why obedience to God and loving others is only possible by the power of the Spirit, and he does this by showing us this stark contrast between two, two things, two existences. Uh, Non-believers, those who are in the flesh and how they exist and live, and believers, those who are in the Spirit and how they exist and live. So th this passage isn't about the internal war that Christians experience. This is about two entirely divergent existences and how one lives out of that existence. So let's read this again. Let's include verse four so we get the flow of Paul's argument. Verse four, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be filled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit, for those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind of the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, 
for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. So verse four, fulfillment of the law happens in believers as they take steps of obedience by the power of the Holy Spirit. It can't happen by the flesh. And then in verse five, Paul explains the reason why this is the case. For or because those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. Now, walk according to in verse four is different than live according to in verse five. Walk in verse five means how we ethically behave. But live in verse four in the, in the Greek is actually talking about existence. It's all about one's being. Paul is talking about our nature. And so we could, we could say it, we could say it as those who exist according to the flesh or exist according to the spirit. And according to literally means the norm which governs something. We, we've been talking about it in terms of under the empowering control of. So those who exist under the empowering control of the flesh, the sinful fallenness, set their minds on the things of the flesh. And set their minds on is an active verb, and in the Greek that means that that's, that's something that's being done by the person. It's not being done to them, they're actively doing this thing. And so it means that they are actively intentionally, mentally consumed in such a way that it directs their life. The theological principle here is how you live is directed by who you are. How you live is directed by who you are. People, we, act, choose, think, love, desire, live according to our nature. And what are those things of the flesh and things of the spirit that these two existences set their minds on? Well, in Galatians 5, 19 through 23, Paul tells us the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, things like these. He says, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Brothers and sisters, your existence is in the Spirit. The Spirit is the norm that governs you. And so you ought to be mentally consumed with the things of the Spirit. Maybe it's worth just taking a moment of reflection. Is that you? Are you setting your minds on the things of the Spirit? I'm not talking about perfection. We're talking about the predominance of your life. Now, Paul explains this paradigm that how you live is directed by who you are in verse six. For, or because, to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. ESV is probably not as clear uh, as, as it could be here. In verse 5, set their minds on is a verb. 
in verse six to set the mind on is a noun. We're talking about a mindset, an inner disposition here in verse six. The, the reason for how you live is directed by who you are is because there is a mindset, a core inner disposition that goes along with one's being. The mindset of the flesh is death. The mindset of the spirit is life and peace. And these mindsets are oriented at diverging futures. One commentator says the flesh tilts those whose existence belongs to it towards death, and the spirit tilts those who belong to him toward life and peace. Now, in verse 7, Paul, Paul exclusively shifts his attention to the flesh, explaining the reason why its mindset tilts those whose existence belongs to it toward death. Right, so this, verse 7, for or because the mind that is set on, again, this is mindset, the mindset of the flesh is hostile to God for or because it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Think, think, think back to verse four. Why is it, why can't obedience to God, loving others, happen by walking in the flesh? It's because the inner disposition of the flesh is hostile to God. Earlier in Romans, if we were just to read this whole letter through, we would have seen in chapter 5, verse 10, that before we were reconciled to God by Jesus' death, we were enemies of God. It's, it's who we were, but it's also what we did, which is why Paul says that the reason why the mindset of the flesh is antagonistic to God is because it does not submit to God's law. It's animus towards God is because it actively rebels against God. The, the fulfillment of the law is summed up in loving others, but the mindset of the flesh is anti-God, self-focused, necessarily anti-relational. The mindset of the flesh wants to use others, not sacrificially love them, What's more, Paul tells us the mindset of the flesh cannot submit to God's law. Paul's not talking about an intellectual or physical inability. Paul is talking about a spiritual inability. Again, remember, people think, desire, choose according to their nature. But there's no external power that is prohibiting those in the flesh from loving God or pleasing God. It's not like those in the flesh are like, well, I'd, I'd, I'd love God, I'd want to please God, but there's something out here that's making it so I can't do that. That's not the case. They could if they would, but they don't want to. Their choice is the fruit of their nature. Look, we're, we're always freely choosing what we desire most. You and I, we, we freely choose what we desire most, but the truth from Scripture is that until God gives us a new heart, a new nature, we will only ever choose the things that are not of God because that's what we desire most. This is why Paul emphatically ends, those who are in the flesh, that is unbelievers, those who are not by faith united to Christ cannot please God. Now this isn't just a Paul thing. 
Jesus says the same thing in John 15, 5. This is interesting. In John 15, 5, talking to his disciples, Jesus says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I am him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. That is nothing spiritually pleasing to God apart from Jesus. Uh, apart from being united to Jesus, we can do nothing that is pleasing to God. Look, unbelievers do a lot of things that on the surface of it we'd, we'd say are good, but apart from Jesus, because they're in the flesh, they cannot please God. Silly, silly example here. But two, two, two people both helping an old lady across the street. I mean, what, what is more good than helping people across the street who wouldn't be able to do it otherwise? So two people helping people across the street. One is an unbeliever in the flesh. One is a believer in the spirit. And only one is doing so in a way that is pleasing to God. Why? Jesus and Paul say the unbeliever in the flesh, they're not in Christ, not in the spirit, Therefore, they're doing it for any other reason than to be pleasing God. Maybe it's so they feel better about themselves. Maybe it's so that others will see them and think well of them. Those in the flesh don't please God because they can't please God because they don't want to please God. The righteous requirement of the law that's summed up in loving others is only fulfilled in those who live under the empowering control of the Spirit. This is Paul's argument. Obedience to God, loving others, cannot be done in the flesh. The flesh is anti-God, self-centered, anti-relational. Loving others in a way that's truly others-focused and God-pleasing can only be done in and by the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, the, the victorious life of love can be ours in the Spirit and by His empowerment. All the, all the does-nots and cannots in the flesh are does and can in the Spirit. Listen, the Christian life is battling against remaining sin, but Paul has his eye on the, on the bigger view of the Christian life as one of victory, as victorious in the Spirit. And that in life entails a new mindset, a new inner disposition, and a new heart with new desires to love God and love others. But listen, I, when you sin and when your mind drifts to ungodly things and the thought comes, I've, I am a screw-up. I am a failure. It's, it's who I am. I'm, I'm just an angry person. I, I just am an anxious person. I am just a fearful person. You're believing a lie. In the spirit, you're fundamentally a different spiritual being than who you once were. You have a whole new existence and a whole new mindset. Again, not talking about perfection, but talking about the predominance of your life as victorious because you are in the Spirit.
by and large, Paul's focus here is on the, what the flesh can't do, right? Two sort, of, two sort of lines there about the spirit is sort of a foil, but this is basically, you can't do this in the flesh. And it's, his argument's clear, but this passage, these verses aren't merely just for us to have some sort of theological conviction that we need the spirit. It's also supposed to produce worship in our hearts. We, we come to a verses like this and we ought to, be worshipful and thankful to our great God and Savior who has caused us to be born again. It is he who brought us from in the flesh to in the spirit. Oh, praise God for what he has done. Oh, beautiful testimonies this morning. Oh, I love baptism Sundays. And thank you. We, we got to see in your life and in your humility in telling us what God has done. God is the great savior. So there's a first entailment of the victorious life in the spirit, a victorious mindset. The second and third are found in verses nine through 11, his presence and a promise. So after talking generally about what it looks like to either be in the flesh or in the spirit, Paul turns his attention specifically to the Christians in Rome and says this in verse nine, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit if in fact the spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. So the victorious life in the spirit entails the spirit's presence. I mean, it should be obvious to us now, and yet this is so important for Paul, nine through 11 is all about it. This is important. Now the phrase, if in fact, is really interesting. If you're reading this, that feels like we're doing some double talk here. There's a couple if clauses here, actually, in these verses. In verse 10, it's, but if Christ is in you, and then verse 11 is, if the Spirit is in you. Now, this is a common way uh, of arguing in the Greek, where a condition is assumed to be true, and here the assumption is, you're in the Spirit. A condition is assumed to be true, but for the sake of argument, it's put in the form of a question. Paul does mean to assure these Christians whom he's actually already identified in this letter as a believers, and he will at the end of our passage again. He means to assure these Christians of their present reality in the spirit. And Paul wants them to be confident that they can in fact please God, that they can in fact love others because they are in the spirit and the spirit is in them. There, there are two truths that are worth pulling out here in verse nine. First, Paul says you are in the spirit if the spirit is in you. It's not you're in the spirit if you believe. Although that's true, Paul states the more fundamental reality. You're in the spirit if the Spirit has chosen to make his home in you. In John 3, famously, John 3, Jesus has an engagement with a Pharisee named Nicodemus. And in that conversation, Jesus tells Nicodemus that one cannot see the kingdom of God, one cannot enter the kingdom of God unless they've been born again. So Nicodemus asks, well, how can one be born again then? And Jesus's answer to Nicodemus is pretty profound. Jesus does not say believe. 
Although we know that belief is an entailment of being born again, Jesus in John 3 verse 8 says that being born again is a result of the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit. You see, brothers and sisters, you're in the Spirit because the Spirit of God has chosen to make your heart his home. Now, we might ask, how do we know that the Spirit has made his home in us? Like, what are the, what are the evidences of that? Well, first and foremost, you're trusting in Jesus. If you're trusting in Jesus, it is because the Spirit has caused you to be born again to be a believer. So first and foremost, you believe in Jesus. There's an evidence. Now another evidence we'll see at the end of our passage here is that if the Holy Spirit is in you, then you will, by the power of the Holy Spirit, be killing your sin. So you, you killing and fighting your sin is an evidence that the Spirit is in you. Some evidences that we'll see next week uh, of the uh, evidence that the Spirit is in you is that you are crying out to God as your Father. Like you, you as, as Pastor Bob talked about, you want to pray, you want to have fellowship with God. Another evidence we'll see next week is that the Spirit himself actually testifies to his presence in you by producing his fruit in you. We, we read through the fruit of the Spirit earlier from Galatians 5. That is a fruit of the Spirit, not a fruit of you. And so if you see love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, etc., in you, that is evidence of the Spirit's work in you and his presence in you. The other profound truth here is that Paul essentially tells us that the, 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 the defining characteristic of a Christian is the Spirit dwells in Christians. He says, if the Spirit is not in you, you do not belong to Christ. But he said, if the Spirit is in you, you do belong to Christ. Brothers and sisters of Grace Bible Church, I've been here for almost 12 years now in various capacities. And over the course of that time, I've gotten to know you, especially if you've been here that long, but many of you I've gotten to know very well so Grace Bible Church, I know I can, and I know that the other elders can too, we can testify that you are in the Spirit and the Spirit is in you. You belong to Christ. And because the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit is in you, you ought to be hopeful that you can and will live the victorious life in the Spirit. Well, on the heels of the last general claim, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Paul goes back now to specifically addressing the Christians in Rome. And he gives them, and by extension, he gives all of us who are in Christ hope in the form of a promise. Verse 10, but, maybe your translation says now or just if, but if Christ is in you, which is Paul's equivalent to the spirit in you, if Christ is in you, Although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. Your, your body will still die because of sin, but the spirit gives life both now and on into eternity because you've been gifted Christ's righteousness. Verse 11, if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead, and here's the promise, will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. Listen, I don't 
I don't have to tell you that our bodies are wasting away. Things are getting better. Things only get progressively worse. Newsflash. But real vitality, soulful vitality, can be, in part, imperfectly enjoyed now and will be perfectly enjoyed then. Because the Spirit has given us life in Christ. And what's more, we're promised, promised ultimate victory in the end. And look, depending on how bad your body is wasting away, this becomes amazing news. One day, because Jesus is risen, you will leave behind this sin, suffering, and death-stricken world. Victorious life that you get to live now in part, the promises you will live in full then. The promise of the new heavens and the new earth is he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, because the former things have passed away. So the second and third entailment of the victorious Christian life in the Spirit is his presence and a promise. All right, the, the fourth is an obligation. The fourth is an obligation, and we see this in verses 12 through 13. Let's read verse 12. So then, or as a result, brothers and sisters, we are debtors not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. In these verses, Paul is communicating the result of us being in the Spirit and the Spirit being in us for everyday Christian life. Here's the big so what. We've been working on theological truths, just here's an existence, here's an existence, here's what it looks like to either be in the flesh or to be in the spirit. These are just facts. So what? And here it is. Paul's gonna say, here's the result. If you're in the spirit and the spirit's in you, here's the result for everyday life. I say it's an obligation because that's what debtors means. It's the one who is obligated to do something. And as believers, we are not obligated to the flesh to live as if we're still under its empowering control. We're no longer subject to its tyranny and mastery. We are not obligated to live in any way that would give the impression that we still live in servitude to the flesh. The flesh has done nothing for us except be the reason why we stood condemned before God. Brothers and sisters in Christ, our obligation is to the Spirit. It's the Spirit who set us free from the power of sin. It's the Spirit who has given us new life in Christ. God's promise to raise our mortal bodies from the dead is through the Spirit. Our obligation is to the Spirit to live moment by moment under his empowering control. Why? Verse 13. For or because if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death or mortify, as the great King James Version says, but if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. In the first half of verse 13, Paul assumes for the sake of argument that if they live moment by moment under the empowering control of the flesh, they 
prove themselves to be in the flesh, and their end will be spiritual death. Again, remember, the mindset of the flesh is death. Then in the second half of verse 13, Paul assumes for the sake of argument that if by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit they put to death the deeds of the body, their remaining sin, they will live on into eternity. Again, the, the minds of the Spirit, you recall, was life and peace. Now, this isn't about losing or earning salvation. Listen, if you claim to be a Christian, to be in the Spirit, yet you live moment by moment by the flesh, you, you thoroughly live like an unbeliever, you prove yourself to be in the flesh, and your end, spiritual death, is not losing salvation, it's proving that the Spirit was never in you and that you were never in the Spirit. But if by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit you progressively put to death your remaining sin, you prove the Holy Spirit is in you and your end, eternal life. It's not earning salvation. Killing sin is evidence that the Spirit has already made his home in you and that you are already belonging to Christ. Now let's talk a bit more about killing our sin by the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. This is the, this is the battle. Again, all we've been talking about are just sort of theological, spiritual realities, not the war. Now we are talking about the, the battle that we know well as Christians, the battle within. And this is our joyful obligation to the Spirit. The, the battle is framed in overall victory. Yes, we're going to experience our ups and our downs, but ultimately, our obligation to the Spirit is to be victoriously killing sin with his power. Now, Paul doesn't get into nitty-gritty details in these verses on what that looks like, but he does show us two implications for how we ought to think about killing our sin. And, and I want to remind us of one truth that we talked about last Sunday as well. So first, remember your identity and respond accordingly. Remember your identity and respond accordingly. Remember, we, we, we live according to our being. And Paul is basically reminding them of that. In verse 12, he identifies them as brothers and sisters. We can so gloss over very easily some of these types of identifications, but they, they mean something powerful behind them. This is, the, this is the family of God language. This is familial. You are brothers and sisters in Christ. He reminds them of who they are and they're supposed to act now accordingly. Brothers and sisters, you are no longer a slave of sin. You are no longer under the power of sin. You are no longer in the flesh. You are the freed people of God. And as we'll see in the verses next week, you are sons and daughters of God. You have been set free from the power of sin. and You are now in the spirit and under his empowering control. And in light of who you are in the spirit, the call here is to act accordingly. You can say no to sin and yes to God in righteousness. Second, to kill sin is not the same as domesticating sin, 
taming it, doing things to try to keep it under our control. We're called to kill sin. Trying to domesticate sin is like trying to make a lion a pet. It is an apex predator, and at some point, it will do apex predator things like eat you. But listen, I think many of us fool ourselves into thinking we're killing our sin when in fact we're just domesticating it. We convince ourselves that we, we have it under control and we can just we can say no whenever we want to. It's, it's, it's over here and we call that killing it. Brothers and sisters, do not play with lions. If you try to domesticate your sin, at some point it will devour you. So as the Puritan John Owen famously says about these verses, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Finally, don't lose sight of last week's truth, and that is that we fight against an already defeated enemy. Oh, remember last week, we got the relish in the amazing truths that the penalty of sin has been paid for. The power of sin has been broken. Yes, its presence remains. We fight against an already defeated enemy. This has always been true of God's people. I was thinking about this. This is, this is, this is similar to uh, in Joshua 1. God's people are about to enter into the promised land. And he says this, Every place that the sole of your foot will tread upon, I have given you. Do not be frightened. Do not be dismayed. For Yahweh your God is with you wherever you go. In the mind of God, the land was already theirs. All they had to was by faith walk in and take it. We kind of know how that story goes. If they would trust God, it wouldn't matter how big the army was, they would find victory. But if they wouldn't trust God that the victory was already theirs, it didn't matter how small they were either, they'd be defeated. And that's sort of illustrative of our Christian life. The victory has been won. We fight against an already defeated enemy. We're just called to go in and live out that victory. I mean, this side of heaven, our remaining sin will never be completely killed off, but the battle of remaining sin is a battle against an already defeated enemy. And this shouldn't cause laziness, but it should motivate us to be actively killing our sin. By the Spirit, we will have victory. The battle with remaining sin is not a momentary activity. No matter how sincere, rather, it's a lifetime commitment done by the Spirit in us. So an obligation, an obligation to be killing our sin, that, that is an entailment of the victorious life in the Spirit. We've seen four entailments of this victorious life. There's a victorious mindset. There's the entailment of his presence and a promise. And then there's this there's this obligation to be killing our sin. We, we know that the Christian life is, is one of war, but here Paul wants us to be encouraged that the Christian life is one of victory in the spirit. We can and will be victorious, brothers and sisters. Like, I don't know where you're at in the ebb and flow of your Christian life and fighting remaining sin. But if you're in the midst of 
defeat. I, I hope you hear this text as a, as a, as a rallying cry or, or an oasis in your desert struggle. God has not left you. He is very with you in the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. You're not who you used to be. You're no longer enslaved to sin. The Spirit has set you free from the power of sin. He's given you a whole new mindset to love God and love others. The Spirit is empowering you toward victory over your anger, victory over your laziness, victory over your selfishness, victory over your lust, toward victory over your fear, victory over your doubt, Victory over your hate. The Spirit is in you, empowering you toward victory over your sin. So pick up your weary heart and flee to God, knowing that you are already accepted in Christ. Know that the power of the Spirit is in you, moving you toward living out this life of victory. Maybe you're experiencing victory, and I pray that you would receive this text as an encouragement to keep going. Give no quarter to your sin. Keep pushing forward, the, marching the troops forward, winning battle after battle. The Holy Spirit indwells you and is eager to empower you towards killing your sin more and more. This is possible. Not because you can, but because he can, and he lives within you. Let's do this together. This is the letter written to a group of Christians who have the spirit living in them. And just like them, we too are called to do these things together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this text that you inspired the Apostle Paul to first write to a group of believers in Rome who were, in fact, struggling to love one another. But you were writing through your Apostle Paul to encourage your children that they have power within them to please you and to love each other. And so it is for us. This is, this is your word for us this morning as well. Father, we, we can live out the victorious Christian life because the spirit of victory is in us, empowering us toward obeying you and loving others. So we thank you. Would you help us to be mindful of this reality? Help us to strive as we rest in this truth. We love you, we thank you. It is in Jesus' name we pray, amen.